and welcome to The Messy Middle. I'm your host, Andrew Horsfield. This podcast is designed for astute leaders like you who want to learn from leaders or experts in their field who can help you elevate your impact as you advance your career, company and life. You can find out more or listen to previous episodes at andrewhorsfield.com forward slash podcast. You think communication will be pretty straightforward, right? I say what I think and feel, and then you say what you think and feel. But it turns out it's not that simple. And when we get stuck defending a position, protecting our ego, or even falling back into some unhelpful behaviours, we quickly lose our ability to influence and impact. And to gain some insights about how we can communicate more consciously and effectively, I turn to Andrew Horobin from Bullshift, a stand-up comedian turned consultant who knows a thing or two about what stands in the way of openness, honesty, and our ability to talk straight, and more importantly, how we can shift to be more conscious in our communication. Full of insights and ideas, you might want to listen to this fun and fast-paced conversation with a pen and paper in hand. It's time to get curious about communication with Andrew Horobin from Bullshift. Andrew, welcome to The Messy Middle. It's great to have you on and I'm really excited to have our conversation with you. And where I wanted to start was a mate of mine who also has been a stand-up comedian, which you've got experience in, attributes a lot of that experience to his corporate success in being able to communicate and adapt and be on his feet. I just wondered what being a stand-up comedian has taught you about leadership and communication. Oh, one of the things I have learned is that if you can make a room full of people laugh, you can make them think. So that's been super handy because some of the stuff that we try to get across in bullshit that can be a bit challenging, you know, we could be upsetting the ego a little bit or encouraging people to look at their behaviour or look into the shadow and sometimes have some uncomfortable conversations. And if you can bring a bit of humour, a few things happen. It sets off happier chemicals in the brain and in the body. And when people are laughing together, it reinforces the commonality between them because people who work together might not feel like they have a lot in common, uh, might not have much of a relationship, might even be at odds with each other, and then they're in the room and they're laughing at the same time. So if we're all laughing at the same time, well, but we're not so far apart after all. And so I think humor is a great way, in terms of communication, it's a great way to get a message across and to get people to look at something that they might otherwise find uncomfortable and to lighten something that could otherwise be heavy. And a lot of great comedians do that. Uh, uh, Michael Lunig, the cartoonist, said the job of a cartoonist is to shout the things that other people whisper. And I think a lot of comedians use humour to shout stuff that we might either whisper about, otherwise, you know, whisper about or, or say things that are a bit uncomfortable to say. So I think humour has a place in that. Yes. Uh, yeah, and just reading a room and responding to it. Tell me when you say earlier about about looking into the shadows. That's one of the challenges of the work you do. What, what do you mean by that? Well, so all of us being human, we have these wonderful attributes that make us who we are and some of them bunch up into whatever is our particular personality or way of doing things. And they're all good, but they can be overdone or exaggerated or just not appropriate to the circumstances. So 
uh, we might exaggerate something or become compulsive about it and then instead of it being a positive attribute, it comes more like a shadow quality. So for example, if I'm very efficient and get a lot done, that's great. But if I overdo it and go into shadow, I could be burning out or really impatient or cutting corners just to achieve something. Or if someone's really good at noticing faults and flaws and pointing them out, that's a wonderful quality. But in shadow, they might be a perfectionist who's super critical and, and nothing's ever good enough and they're always finding the faults with everything. And so the shadow is often just the gift overused or the attributes overdone. And uh, what happens for any of us, we can get triggered by life overreact to things, have a disproportionate response, and that's an indicator that we've gone into shadow somehow. And in bullshift, one of the many things we're trying to do is normalize people being able to see that, own it, take responsibility for it, uh, express whatever the feelings are, and then find a way out of shadow and back to whatever their best self looks like. Yeah, is that a 10-year program that you offer for people? Yeah, it's a 50-year <laughs> program. And, of course, having achieved this uh, myself and uh, only ever been in uh, best <laughs> self, I, I've, uh, I feel like I'm uh, you know, qualified to speak. Now, what this is the thing is where dropping into shadow is something can happen every day. Yeah. Uh, now, I've known people who, for whatever reason, have gone into shadow for an extended period of time and gone deep into shadow and got really stuck there and it can take a lot for them to come out. But even on a good day, you can get a little bit triggered by something and you can go a little bit into shadow. And if you're aware of it, then what we talk about is trying to improve your speed of recovery. So how quickly can you notice it, take responsibility and come out again? So it's actually not about permanently staying out of shadow because I don't even know if that's possible, but it's about normalizing that we do go in and out of it all the time. And the more comfortably and freely we can talk about it, the less likely we are to get stuck there for long periods. Yeah, I really love that as a concept because I think it's that that old what's helpful and what's hindering rather than it's a strength or a weakness because, as you're saying, a strength can overuse, can turn into the weakness and it's a slightly different attribute. But um, but it's it's within the same family of the characteristic, which is a strength. So I like that sort of sense of help or hinder um, or shadow and best self. Is it always stress that puts people there or can it sometimes be, you know, over-enthusiasm to achieve something or opportunity that they want to launch straight into and and therefore can put them into this shadow side? Yeah, I think that things that can put us there are pretty far-ranging. Uh, in Bullshift, we use uh, Print, which is a uh, like a personality profiling tool but a super smart one that works really well with Bullshift. And uh, within the print profiles, there are loads of different triggers for different people. So some of the triggers you might not bother me at all and vice versa. So it's not uh, necessarily stress as such that puts a person there. It's the stress that's created by that particular trigger being hit. So that could be anything from other people not doing things properly or not following the rules, or it could be people trying to put too many rules on me. It depends what triggers you, you know. So you might be the person who it drives you nuts when other people don't stick to the standards and follow the processes or you could be the person who someone else is always trying to get to do that and what triggers you is feeling hemmed in or told that you can't be creative or uh, just made to do things the same way all the time. So I think they're quite different things for different people and of course we think whatever our triggers are are totally justified and reasonable. Like uh, when we have a reaction that's one of the kind of nature of being in shadow is we're so justified about it. Any reasonable person would have reacted the way I'm reacting. Yeah. But then someone sitting next to you is going, well, mm. didn't bother me. So Yeah, it's 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 flipping it both ways, isn't it? Yeah. It's flipping it both ways. Yeah. Like you've got these wonderful qualities, but they can be overdone. Or well, that's a great that you know the great thing that you notice faults, but you're pointing out faults in something that no one needed criticize. 
So go fix something that needs fixing. Or it's great that you're a helper and you really want to help people, but you're trying to help someone who doesn't want the help or need it. And now you're resenting them for not appreciating the help you're giving them that they never asked for in the first place. Yeah. How do I, um, I'm, I'm thinking about people listening going, oh, I, of course they wouldn't be thinking of themselves. That's probably too much of a stretch as you're running on the treadmill or driving the car. But I, I can guarantee they're talking about their, or thinking about their partner or their boss or their colleague and someone who, who fits into this category. If I'm seeing someone in that shadow side and I want to help them shift, what do I need to do? Or how do I draw that person out to be, you know, more of the person that, that makes that positive contribution? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. I think in terms of whether they're thinking about themselves first, we always do try to get people to think about themselves first because some people do exactly that. You know, we'll run a workshop and there are people who come up and go, you know who needed to be here is Graham and he's, he's the one who needed it most and guess who called in sick yes. this morning? And often there is that person who we're all struggling with and they manage to avoid this kind of learning. But sometimes the people who are saying that are just not looking at themselves either. So we always encourage people to start with yourself. Well, how do you know if you're in shadow or best self? And if you're in shadow, how do you get out of it? What helps you to do that? And the more tuned in we are to ourselves, generally speaking, the more able we are to try to understand others, even though the other person's attributes and weaknesses and shadow behaviors might be completely different to mine, at least I can relate to being in and out of that state. Yeah. And what what I am enjoying about your perspective and what you're sharing, Andrew, is that when we when we thought, think about cultures, and I'm sure you've been there in organisations, you know, we try and mandate these behaviours that people have to fit into, you know, five words or seven words, and and we we miss the nuance of exactly what you're talking about in in these shadow states and things that help and hinder us and. It, it's a it's a great approach to think that there's you know you out there getting people to be a little bit more educated, a little bit more sophisticated about how we deal with the the messiness of the human condition. Yeah, well, and I love the name of your um, podcast, the Messy Middle, because a lot of stuff is messy, and sometimes we're wishing it wasn't, and sometimes we would be better off and more effective if we just accept that it is, but. Some things just are complex. Some things just are messy. In terms of approaching that person in shadow, for example, um, we're probably we're not necessarily just going to logically explain to them why they shouldn't be there, and if they'd only do these three things, they'd be fine. Generally, we've got to start by empathising with where the person is at and trying to understand it and not even necessarily relate to it because they might be a completely different person to me. So I don't have to, it doesn't have to make sense to me that they're in that that state. It makes sense to them that they're in that Mm. state. So trying to empathize with them and be genuinely curious and try to accept them as they are in the state they're in and then collaborate with them on a path out of that. And that can be a messy process. It might not be in a straight line and what works for me might not work for them. Yeah, it's a really nice point. And a lot of the the work you do with Bullshift is about conscious communication. And I just wanted to understand from you, why do we need to be more open and straight and honest with each other? We distinguish between these things. And so, in fact, in Bullshift, it's four shifts. Get clear, be open, be honest, and collaborate. And they're all slightly different from our point of view. So, let's say you just said open and honest, for example, we distinguish between them and refer to openness as about literally letting it come in. Because if I'm closed, I'm a very hard person for you to be honest with. Let's say you're trying to give me some feedback on something, a project that we're working on, and you see a few issues. You want to be honest with me. You have a desire to be honest. You might have some of the skills of being honest, but I'm just defensive. So I'm not interested. 
then it's very hard for you to do. So, and even before being open, we work on getting clear. We find a lot of issues can be resolved just by people being clear. Because particularly, say, if we're in Australia, this is a country where people will literally say yeah and nah at the same time, mm. right, and go, yeah, nah, it's all good. And we use a lot of sarcasm to communicate or we use a lot of polite backhanded ways of communicating. So we'll ask questions to make statements, say things like, are we concerned about cost? When what we mean is I'm concerned about cost. Yes. So we do all this vague stuff. So we first work on getting clear and sometimes just the process of getting clear actually helps people to be more honest. But we get those skills down. Then we work on being open. So how do I be more open to feedback, open to different opinions, uh, if I'm to try to answer your question, why is it important? If I'm not open, then how much information could I be missing out on? How much useful feedback might I not be able to apply? How many different perspectives am I not taking into consideration? I might make poor decisions. I might block people who could actually help me. Uh, so we work on being open. Then we work on being honest. After we've got the habits down around getting clear and being open, only then do we work on, all right, we're going to go and give more feedback or speak up more because it's very hard to – speak up and be honest and give that feedback if no one around has done any work on the being open. Mm. And then all three of those things build towards being able to collaborate more effectively. It's a lovely path or sequence that that you break down for that reason. I love the way you've explained that. Most people would get this in theory, I suspect. Why do we find it hard in practice? Yeah, so often, you know, when we start doing this work, Often people are really excited. We're there. Oh, so good you've come in. There's so many people around here really need to hear this. And we're, we're mostly thinking about how much other people need to change. So I think one of the things that makes it hard in practice is realising, oh, I'm actually going to have to try some new habits here, some new ways of communicating. Because typically of the 12 principles and the 15 habits, most people will be good at some of them already and and then be challenged by different things depending on who they are. So what makes it hard for them to practice will be a bit different depending on who the person is. So if, for for example, someone's very concerned about upsetting people, then the habits around speaking up will challenge them because they're afraid that if they start saying what they really think and, and being direct about it and being clear about it, they're afraid they're going to upset people, whereas someone else might not have that fear of upsetting They might be quite a tough sort of person who loves telling people what they think and their challenge is actually taking the feedback and having to park their opinions and having to listen with curiosity. So each person can be a little bit challenged by slightly different things, but all of the habits at some point or another are asking people to change and practice something new. And some of the behaviors have been embedded for 40 years. They're not easy to just change because you went to one workshop. Yeah. And sitting in that Difficulty can sometimes be easier for people than stepping into that uncertainty or fear that you're reflecting or, or sharing it gets in the way. Yeah, it's well, I think sometimes it's like we do a risk assessment in our heads of what we think will happen if we have that more honest conversation. Like, how many times have you talked to someone in your head for two weeks and then you sit down and you start the conversation and they go off script? Mm hmm. You know, so you've been talking to them in your head for two weeks anticipating how it's going to go and it's not how it goes at all. And so we do these risk assessments of, oh, if I have this conversation, they're going to get upset, this is going to happen, that's going to happen. Uh, having worked out all of this great calamity that I think is going to occur, I'll take the discomfort I've already got. 
I'll take the stress or waste or conflict that I've already got because when I compare the two, it seems like what I'm currently experiencing is better than this apparent catastrophe we're going to have if we all try to be honest with each other. And we don't do enough actually verifying if that's the case. Uh, so we find often when people get late in the program and they're applying the habits, a lot of people come back to us and say, I've had a few conversations around a few things. Mm. A lot of them went a lot better than I thought they would. Yeah, and and that uh, I suspect is is partially down to the fact that you tend to teach a set of principles rather than a you know a process of crucial conversations or difficult conversations. Can you explain your thinking behind that as why that's the approach you, you chose to take and some of the benefits as to why you do that approach? Yeah, and I should say it's always going through continuous improvement for us. So that series of shifts that I'm talking about, get clear, be open, be honest, collaborate, that took us years to get to that point. I've been doing this kind of work for 29 years, and some days I feel like I'm just beginning. There's so much to learn. So we're pretty confident about where it's at now because the feedback we get tells us that it works. Um, But the reason I, I prefer principles and habits to formulas is that each situation can be different and each person can be different. And I think if I try too much to practice a particular formula consistently, uh, there are a couple of issues. One is that I might not pay enough attention to when that formula is not working or I might think it's the other person's fault. You know, this formula works all the time. What's the matter with you? Um, Or the other thing is if the other person starts to experience that they're on the other end of a formula – then they may feel like they're actually being manipulated and controlled rather than what we're aiming for in bullshit, which is an adult conversation. So an honest, open, clear, direct, collaborative conversation. And that means, to some extent, surrendering the outcome. So if you go in with the view that you've got to get a particular result, I need to have this outcome and all these people need to think this and feel this way and respond in this way and so on, uh, I... To me, that's risky because it means I haven't got enough openness myself as to what might occur. And I think one of the things that makes honest conversations go better is whoever's initiating them is open to learning something themselves or open to the possibility that they're wrong or they've missed something. Uh, And we do have a couple of things in Bullshift that are short-form processes, but mostly we prefer to work on principles because we think the principles are, are generally true and then the habits are how we practice them. Yeah. How do you encourage people to balance the positive thinking and preparation to not having that confirmation or bias to a certain outcome or confirmation of their existing thinking? Uh, Yeah, well, through this kind of inquiry, so the kinds of questions you're asking. So what we try to do in in our workshops or web shops is, is to actually go into the inquiry with people. So we're not like lecturers going, here's everything that's correct. We're putting principles forward and suggesting habits and then we're working with people on them. One of the simplest ways to describe collaboration is it's thinking together. So when you get internal competition, everyone did their thinking already and then they just come into a room and try to convince everybody else. And when you get a cooperative relationship, we all kind of think what we think and we'll give and take a bit and compromise a bit and come up with some sort of solution. But in collaboration, we're thinking together. So I allow my perspective to be changed by yours and vice versa. So we find that because those are the principles and habits we're trying to get across, the best way to do that is to actually make the experience itself a thinking process. So if a person was going into a conversation, 
and they were too fixed on the outcome, which is not to say that we shouldn't have objectives in a conversation. Of course, you might sit somebody down with a particular set of objectives, but we're just saying always try to hold some openness around that and not get too attached to the outcome just so that if something new enters the conversation while you're thinking together and talking together, that you're, you're willing to at least look at it or consider it. Um, and you might well, after an hour of talking with a person, still have the same view that you did at the start, but how do you know that that's because you were right from the beginning and how do you know it's not just because you were so attached to your view? So we encourage people to check in with themselves and prepare themselves for the conversation rather than try to prepare the conversation. I'm just thinking about the context of people in a in a workplace setting where there is often, you know, competing priorities for time, budget, resources, direction, all those things, and, and trying to apply what you're saying into that sense of collaboration, but also being completely scared about what that might mean for my department, my budget, what I have to do, what I have to deliver. Mm. It's a real skill for people to engage and entertain, isn't it? It, it is. It's substantial. It's That's why it's not one thing. That's why there's not one formula that works every time. And that's why there are 12 principles and 15 habits, and they're all based on four foundations. There's, it's a hard thing to summarize without going into it all. But And some people, it's late in the program that they start going, oh, okay, I see that all these things are interconnected. And to answer your question before, why principles or why habits is that we pick them up when we need them. So we don't use every habit all the time, but we could be in a conversation where we go, well, this is a moment where I need to be more authentic. I feel like I'm pretending. So the principle is don't pretend, be authentic. The habit is state your wants and concerns. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to state my wants and concerns. Or you could be in a conversation that's getting really heated. People are being competitive. And we notice that people are expressing their opinions as facts. And because they're expressing opinions as facts, that's distorting the conversation. So what we need is I statements. People need to say, I think, I reckon, I've noticed, I feel, it seems to me. So we need to get some I statements going. Okay, that's the habit we'll pull on. Another time we might notice that we're being defensive and go, okay, I need to be curious. So what does that mean? That's more questions than statements. Okay, I need to ask some genuine questions. Or we might notice the language you just used there of my department, my budget. So one of the things we encourage people to think about early on in the program is what we call in bullshift, high passion, low attachment. Mm -hmm. So people should be really passionate about what they do, but low attachment, hold it lightly. What happens in most organizations is people get possessive over things they consider to be theirs. My job, my team, my department, my budget. Anytime someone in an organization says to me, oh, and no, I don't have room for that in my budget, I always want to say to them, geez, are you spending your own money on this? That's crazy. The organization's got money. You shouldn't be putting your own money in. <laughs> and obviously I don't say that, but it's not your budget. You're accountable for it, but it's not your money. So this idea that it's my job and I own it and I can do it however I want to do it, is insane. And if we don't get that stuff sorted out right at the beginning when we're interviewing people and recruiting them and inducting them and help them to understand the role is something you're accountable for and the role can change. And it's all about being in service to something greater than ourselves. If the organization is not clearly in service to something greater than itself and every person in the organization can't draw a straight line between what they do and who they serve, then we are going to have a problem because people are going to get possessive of things they consider to be theirs and then they're, they're going to want to control that uh, and then it makes it hard to collaborate. 
Yeah, that's principle seven, right, around that detachment and reflection so you're not so emotionally invested. One of the other ones I love of the principles that you talk about, which I think everyone's guilty of, is just about using plain speak and real words, not the corporate jargon and the... I'm sure you've got a an entertaining perspective about why that matters and the, the value that that brings out. Well, it started when I first wrote the book in 2008, I was only thinking of that classic type of corporate speak. It seemed to me around that time you couldn't go to a conference without someone talking about going forwards, you know. So uh, going forwards and I'd go to meetings with executive teams and it was like everyone was trying to outdo each other. Well, what we need to do is see if we can achieve uh, vertical integration so that we can optimise synergies and maximise uh, workflow. And, and it was just all this kind of let's drill down and get traction so we can realise our key strategic imperatives. And I just, I don't know who that impresses, but it didn't impress me. And sometimes I'd think, well, there's some of that language is quite useful, but sometimes it was just people trying to impress each other or trying to people people trying to keep their circle closed. But what I've discovered since writing the book in 2008 and working with so many organizations, I mean, we're in, I've worked in hundreds of organizations, just about every different kind of field you could think of. And you go into mining, oil and gas, banking, hospitals, schools, universities, local councils, like pick any kind of area and it won't be corporate speak in that commercial sense, but there'll be closed circle language. And I actually saw the CEO of a TAFE speak once to all of his staff and he said, I think we use our own language so we can keep our circle closed. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, yeah, that's it. Corporate speak isn't just the businessy kind. It's any kind of closed circle language. So we say the principle is don't use corporate speak, use meaningful words. But then the habit is explained to include so it's about noticing we should have these people collaborating with us, but we're using closed circle language to keep them out. So we need to translate whatever our version of the corporate speak is so they understand what we're talking about so that they can contribute. Yeah, and I think acronyms is one of those s- simple ones that, that people would refer to, isn't it? Every industry's got them and yeah. people use them and you don't want to ask because you're meant to know and if you don't know, am I you're silly? Is this something I should know? And yeah. it, it, it keeps that, that closed loop, doesn't it? Yeah, and then when you've been around for a while, you get to use the acronyms on the new person and then you get to have that status over them. Well, sometimes it's longevity in the organisation. So people who've been there 10 years will tell stories about stuff that happened long before you were here just to remind you that you're not a local. You know, And sometimes it is used to obfuscate or to to hide or to try to soften something. You know, I mean, we don't say to people, look, we're ending your position. We say, we're letting you go. Isn't that nice? And you go, but I don't want to go. Well, we're letting you go anyway. No, but I don't. I don't want to go. Well, we're you know we're letting you, but we're not actually letting them go. We're telling them to go. Yeah. Why? Why is that direct language speaking openly um, so hard for us to do? Well, the thing is, it's not hard for everybody. So there are parts of the world that prefer that direct way of communicating. And there are personality types who prefer that direct way of communicating. And sometimes there are industries or just teams within organizations who prefer it. But generally speaking in Australia, it's not how most of us communicate. So we use a lot of subtext like sarcasm. So if someone's late in Australia, we generally don't go, mate, that's the second meeting you've been late to. You need to make an effort to be on time. We go, good afternoon. You're on the night shift, are you? Mm. You know, we use a whole series of jokes to try to chip away at them or we use really polite things, like I said earlier, about asking questions to make statements. 
And I think when we're making unpopular decisions, like we're sacking 100 people or ending the roles of 20 people or whatever it is, it gets called right-sizing and downsizing and rationalizing and a whole bunch of stuff, and partly because it diffuses the responsibility of the people who've made the decision. Uh, because you know, I don't, it, we're trying to make it less personal. Oh, it's not me, Andrew. You got to understand, it's uh, market forces. Um, partly because we think it'll soften the blow on the other person, even though the reality is exactly the same. Whether you get let go or sacked or terminated or your role gets ended, it all means you don't work here anymore. Um, some of it's to try to reduce the the chance of the backlash. And uh, sometimes people just think you know it's the nicest, most polite way to speak, and sometimes it is. But it can also that can also be used as an excuse to hide. How can leaders who are listening create the environment for some of these principles to be brought to bear in their day-to-day function and operation and, and the way people relate to each other? I, I think one of the things for us all to understand, it goes back to what you said earlier about embracing the messiness or being able to sit in the discomfort or whatever. I think one thing is to understand that it's not one event. You can't stand up once and tell people, I've got an open door policy or this is an open forum and then just think that we're all done. Too many of us have been conditioned for too long that we don't deal with conflict head on, that you don't give feedback up or even across. Feedback only goes down. Uh, that that when someone says, oh, it's an open forum, the first two people to speak are probably going to get shot down. Uh, that when someone says they've got an open door policy, usually it means they think your door should be open or they, they might have a force field across their door. If people go with what's their actual experience. So being told that I'm welcome to speak up, that's nice, but what's my actual experience when I speak up? And what do I notice what happens to other people when they speak up? So if it hasn't been the behavior, the culture, it, in my experience, we have to understand it takes a long time to change it. You can't expect some flash in a pan cultural initiative and we do a big values rollout and it turns out now respect is one of our values and so we're all going to show respect and then we're all done. So we tell people, like people will say to us, what's your definition of culture? And my definition is two words. It's normalized behaviors. So whatever behaviors are normalized around you, that's your culture. doesn't matter what values you stick on the wall. So If you've got a current set of normalized behaviors and you're trying to get to a new set of normalized behaviors, in my experience, that takes some time. So it needs leaders to go first. They have to mostly be the exemplars. No one's perfect and no one should expect anyone to be perfect. So it's not fair to think that those leaders will get it right all the time, but they should have an aspiration to get it right. And they should be the example. They need to show, I take feedback, I give feedback, it comes sideways, it comes up. I have honest conversations, I own my mistakes, I park my opinions, I talk about we, not just about me. The more they see the leaders doing that, the more likely the managers underneath them are going to do that. But if you can't get your executive team, whatever that version is in your particular organization, if the executive team doesn't collaborate, it's near impossible to get collaboration underneath. Yeah. So, and I think people love that feeling of collaboration when they experience it, the sense of belonging and united purpose and incredibly good, strong, positive, honest communication. Um, but to build people into that experience, if they haven't experienced it before and have no reference point for it, don't even know what it looks like, I think it takes some time and you've got to build the trust incrementally. Yeah. And I mean, you've done a lot of work in high stakes environments or clients who work in high stakes environments. Do the principles and practices change at all under under time or decision-making 
pressures or do you find that they transfer really readily? So, yeah, we work with the federal police and with state police and work with three AFL clubs and you know, people, and say people in hospitals, you know, who work in emergency situations and so on. And what they tell us is that when people come together in a crisis and when the crisis is galvanising, because that doesn't always happen, but if the crisis galvanises a group of people, they will automatically, naturally and largely unconsciously practice all the principles and habits we're talking about. Then they come out of it, like the cops will say, you know, during a, typically during a disaster, a flood or a bushfire or something like that, there have been some examples recently of things not going well, but even within them you hear these remarkable stories. There was one story of a doctor, she was talking about how she and a bunch of other staff evacuated a whole bunch of patients from a hospital just before the floods came in. And what they would have done to pull that off, you don't have infighting. People are not going, oh, but I don't like it like that and that's not what my team's going to approve of and I'm going to have some back corridor conversations and I'm going to use sarcasm to communicate and I'm going to gossip and mutter and so on. People just stop doing all that stuff because the nature of the crisis makes the egos kind of dissolve and they just have to work together. They know they're interdependent. They know they have to make it work. And then afterwards they'll go, oh, that was amazing. You had fireys and the cops and state and local council and then local NGOs all came together. It was amazing. And then afterwards they go, why can't we be like that all the time? So the challenge is to have those collaborative behaviours but without the crisis being the imperative for it because it is possible to make those things routine. Um, but you're trying to trying to extract those things they do so incredibly well for all of our benefits in those moments and then just codify them so they can be something we can practice on a more daily basis. How do the people with the power help to get more open in feedback and collaboration in the decision-making processes in the organisation? How do they help facilitate that apart from just doing the practice themselves? So in Bullshift, there are 15 habits. The second habit is called Inform, Discuss, Decide. And the idea of calling Inform, Discuss, Decide is to notice the conversation's messy and to try to clear it up. And it's, it's only three words, but there's a hell of a lot in it. There are a bunch of ways a conversation can get messy or we can lose collaboration. So the first one, Inform, who contributes the information? Where does it come from? And can we distinguish between the information and the discussion? So the information is what we know. What we think about what we know is part of the discussion. So one of the things that leaders can do is when a group of people are gathering information on an issue, is be careful that they don't unduly distort that by expressing an opinion that then everybody else just goes and looks for information to suit the opinion that the boss already has. And sometimes leaders don't even know they're doing this. They just because they've got status or authority or gravitas or experience or whatever it is, they they'll they'll just be thinking out loud, and then everyone runs off and starts opening branches on the other side of the world because they think that's what the boss wants. So, be clear in what information you're trying to gather, and be clear in the distinction between the information and your opinions, and save the opinions for the discussion. So, gather the information, and then when you get to the discuss part, be clear on who contributes to the discussion. Now, I think one of the misunderstandings about collaboration is that everybody's part of the discussion. And we've got clients where they've tried to create a more collaborative workplace and they've confused that with an inclusive workplace because collaboration often involves inclusion, but they're not exactly the same thing. 
Same as collaboration often leads to consensus, but they're not exactly the same thing. And collaboration generally involves consultation, but again, they're not exactly the same thing. So part of what we need to get clear on, and that's why it's the second habit in Get Clear, we need to get clear on who's part of the discussion. So if you don't get clear, so let's say you've got good information, because and plenty of times we get one piece of information, then everyone just launches into discussion. So they get one fact and we're all just topping it up with opinions now. And because we're sitting here and someone said something and someone else reacted to that, we're all going to sit around waxing lyrical on what we think about this thing, but we're all ill-informed. So get proper information and quality information, then have the discussion. And then in the discussion, say, well, who should be part of this? Because if you don't actually get clear on that, you'll have over-contributors and under-contributors. Some of us think a little too much of ourselves and will weigh in too much, and other people won't contribute unless you call on them. So get good information, then in the discussion, get really clear on who should contribute to that. And that doesn't necessarily mean everybody or everyone who has an opinion. Because if you ask everyone, you'll probably get an opinion from everyone, but that doesn't mean those opinions are informed or relevant or useful. Mm -hmm. So leaders can get more openness and more collaboration by being clear who should contribute the information, who should be part of the discussion, and then who gets to make the decision. Sometimes that's a consensus decision, sometimes it's a democracy, and sometimes it's a benevolent dictatorship. Just be clear with people. The more clear the leader is on that, the more effectively people can contribute to that. Then within the discussion, if we look at some of the later habits we work on in Bullshift, in the discussion it becomes extremely important that the leaders don't get defensive, that they don't express opinions as facts, uh, that they're able to park an opinion so they can hear something different, that they talk about we and it, not just I, me, my. So there are a bunch of things they can do within that discussion that are more or less likely to encourage honest contributions from people. And one of the biggest things is everyone will watch the way you respond to people who challenge you. So if the leader affirms that and thanks people for that and genuinely considers those things and shows when their perspective has been changed and everybody notices that nothing bad happened to the person who gave the feedback or challenged them, then you'll get more of it. But there are some people who will never speak first and never speak second. They watch what happens. And if the first two people get shot going over the wall, who's going third? The hot tip for leaders, Andrew, is people watch the way you take the first two bits of feedback. Thanks, Andrew. It's, it's been terrific to have you on the messy middle. It, you know, I just see communication as one of those, one, it's an essential lifelong skill, but it's also a skill that we can never really completely say that we've we've done with and we've learned and we can put the cue back in the rack. And so I think it's been brilliant to give people some valuable insights around how they can, you know, continue their communication education. So thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been terrific. Yeah, it's great. Just a couple of things before we wrap up. If you've enjoyed this episode and think it'll be good company for your drive home, commute on the train, or even mental fuel during your daily workout, please subscribe by clicking on your preferred podcasting platform at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash podcast. And if you'd like to receive a monthly email from me with insider content, videos, white papers and some recommended reading that will help you move your mental furniture around advancing people and performance, then sign up for more content that's been curated specifically for curious minds like yours at andrewhorsefield.com forward slash contact. Thanks for listening.